Good morning. Welcome to another of our Wednesdays in the Word as we work our way verse by verse through God's Word. My name is Gary Cooney, and I'm glad you could be with me in this time as we seek to unfold God's Word together. We're in the midst of an extended study of the book of Romans. We're in the fifth chapter now, and today I want to pick up our reading in verse 9 and look at verses 9 through verse 11 of the fifth chapter of Romans. Let me read it to get us started. Since, therefore, we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. As you've been with me now, and we're in the fifth chapter and have been for a while, we've been learning more about the wonderful outcomes of the gospel. That gospel, as Romans 1.16 put it, that is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Essentially, the thread going through the fifth chapter has been this thread of justification, being declared right before God, credited with the perfect life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last time, as we were together, looking at verses 6 to 8, we were looking at the link between God's love and this wonder of justification. We discovered in verse 6 that God's love for us, his unmerited love, his agape love, as the Greek word is translated in the English love, we see it reflected in the actual timing of Christ's first coming. As Verse 6 puts it, Christ came into the world at the right time, at the perfect time. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 uses the phrase, in the fullness of time. God's love for us is that shown in the fact that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world at exactly the right point in the unfolding drama of human history that would yield the best outcome for those whom God loved. And remember, he loved the whole world so much that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. <laughs> One evidence of God's love, part of that evidence is the fact that God chose exactly the right time in eternity, the fullness of time, to send his son into the world. It was neither too late nor too early. Can you rest in a God like that? <laughs> we also discovered in those preceding verses, verses 6 to 8, that this love of God, this agape love of God, was a despite kind of love rather than a because kind of love. That human love, by its very nature, tends to be a because type of love. I love you because you are this way or because you do these things. But God's love is a despite kind of love. He cares for us, reaches out in selfless care for us, despite the truth about us. And we saw four things that were true of all of us, me, you, uh, that prove that God's love is a despite kind of love. The passages tell us that Jesus Christ came to die for us while we were still weak. It tells us that he came to die for us while we were still ungodly. 
Not because we turned over a new leaf, tried to be more godly and religious. No, no. He came for us while we were still ungodly. He came for us while we were weak uh, in the sense that we couldn't do anything to save ourselves. He came to die for us, it tells us, that while we were yet sinners. Meaning, we had already broken the commandments of God. We had already, as a result, been separated from God. He, he came for us while we were in the condition of being sinners. And then ultimately, he came for us while we were in the condition of being enemies of God. Hostile toward God. A love for us despite our weakness, our ungodliness, our sinfulness, and our animosity and enemy attitude toward the God who was really there. <laughs> God's love is a despite kind of love. As Romans 5, 8 tells us, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, <laughs> Christ died for us. His love demonstrated in the Lord Jesus Christ did prove that love of God for us. Christ coming into the world at the right time, dying on the cross, raising from the dead, all of that proved the fact that God loved us. By the way, it also proved that he's holy and just and righteous because there would have been no need to send Jesus Christ into this world had there been some other solution for our sin in light of his holiness, righteousness, and justice. But there was no other solution other than sending his only son into this world to die for us. Christ's death, therefore, was a substitutionary atonement. He died in our place. We ended last time by talking about the fact that in efforts to try to make Christianity more palatable to those people who are ultimately not interested in what the Word of God has to say, uh, there's a tendency for some groups to talk about Jesus coming into this world primarily to set us an example, to try primarily to encourage us to right the wrongs in a fallen world, primarily for the purpose of justice and, and uh, equity. But brothers and sisters, while Following Christ certainly fosters justice. Uh, Jesus Christ came not as an example setter, but as the propitiation for our sin. He came into the world because we needed him to come into the world to save us. We are a people who have the shed blood of Christ as the foundation of our lives. And of course, that bridges us into these verses that I just read to you. Verses 6 to 8 where God introduces us to five of the results of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, of Christ's death and resurrection, and how that proved God's love for us. And he uses different verb tenses. Here's a little grammar lesson for us. He uses some different verb tenses to underscore the wonder of these five results. So let's begin to look at them together in our, in our expositional grammar lesson as we see these five results in the tenses tied to it. The first of these we see in verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Result number one. We have been justified by his blood. A past tense. A verb that's a past tense, meaning it's describing something already happened. The shedding of Christ's blood, which already took place, was crucial to justification. 
crucial to that credited righteousness, crucial to the solution to sin. We have been justified by his blood, nothing less. Only the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ was sufficient to bring about this amazing, miraculous outcome of justification for those who repent and believe. It was crucial to righteousness. If one tries to take away the shed blood of the Lord Jesus from their understanding of Christianity, they have no Christianity, just some sort of religious ethical system. The Bible centralizes our focus on the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that promised ultimate sacrifice, the precious lamb whose blood shed for us created the solution to the unsolvable. There's a good summary of the first four chapters of the book of Romans, isn't it? <laughs> Listen, that's the reason in the sharing together in the Lord's Supper communion that God has put together for his people to be a continuing observance memorial ordinance. <clears throat> we focus in on both the breaking of Christ's body, suffering on the cross, and the shedding of his blood. A continuing reminder to us, not of the need to continue to shed the blood, but a continuing reminder to us that we've been justified by that shed blood, and nothing less, nothing more, always rooted in the cross. There is no gospel, remember Romans 1.16, <laughs> I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. There is no gospel without the fact that Jesus Christ shed his blood for us. You can never overemphasize the shedding of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. To me, uh, it's sad revelation as I look at many songs that tend to characterize churches in the contemporary era that while purporting to be songs that exalt God, increasingly the idea of the shed blood of Christ is absent from the songs. <laughs> Listen, the shed blood of Christ. Central, we've been justified, past tense, by his blood. Well, that's not all it says. Therefore, since we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? The second of these results, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. A future tense, talking about something out there, yet to happen. You and I, in turning to Christ as Savior, repenting and believing in that gospel, God promises us that in that coming day, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. <laughs> Ephesians 2 begins by telling us we are all by nature objects of wrath because we are all sinners, separated from God, helpless and hopeless and without God in this world. All of us are facing the inevitable reality of Hebrews 9 that it's appointed unto man once to die and after that to face judgment. No, we are in the position now where we've been saved from that wrath. The future is a settled issue for us, even though it's a future tense. Today, we've passed out of judgment into life. We need not fear any longer the reality of standing before God. We now, as we saw earlier in the fifth chapter, stand before God on a different foundation, the foundation of the perfect life of Christ credited to us. 
What a wonderful outcome of justification. Think of how it's put in these verses in the Gospel of John. In chapter 5, verse 24, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Sounds just like Romans 5, <laughs> verse 9. Think about John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son of God shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Brother and sister, if you have responded to the gospel, repentance and faith in what Christ has done for us, the wrath of God no longer remains on you. We shall be saved from the wrath of God because of that credited righteousness of Christ. The future for us will be a wonderful reality in right relationship with God, having passed out of judgment into life. We who were creatures of wrath, by nature objects of wrath, have passed out of that condition. A future tense. All right? Grammar lesson. Past tense. We've been justified by that shedding of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Future tense. We shall be saved from the coming wrath of God facing all men and women. We shall be saved from that because of the credited righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's move on. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son... Much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life. <laughs> Another past tense. Here is the result. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. When we turned in repentance and faith to the gospel, to Christ, we were reconciled. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 picks up on this wonder of reconciliation and how we've been reconciled to God through what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. And he's given us the ministry of reconciliation, meaning we go out and tell people about this message of the gospel which reconciles people to God. Ultimately, because as Romans or 2 Corinthians 5.21 ends with, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become or be made the righteousness of God justified justification in the past when we responded to the gospel we at that moment in time were reconciled to god we saw last time that we were enemies apart from the gospel we who were enemies hostile in our minds have now been reconciled have now been changed into friends of god <laughs> I love that, that gospel song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. That's just wishful thinking for anybody who has not responded in repentance and faith to that wonder of the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation everyone who believes. But if we've been reconciled, if we have been justified by faith, we can sing What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And it's a reality applicable to our life reconciled to the Father. Reconciliation has not something for the future. It is something already done for us if we've responded to the gospel. And it was done 
when we respond to the gospel because it was now possible when Christ shed his blood and rose from the dead. You see the verb tenses? The past. We've been justified by his shed blood. The future. We shall be saved from the wrath of God. The past. We were reconciled. We who were enemies, alienated, we were reconciled to God. How's your grammar lesson coming along? You see, it makes a difference, doesn't it? God gives us different tenses in verbs to underscore some unbelievable truths that he has revealed in his scriptures, spoken out to us. He knew we needed to know it, and so he said it. What a friend we have in Jesus. Well, verse 10 goes on and says this, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. The first point, past tense, justified by his blood. Second point, future tense, shall be saved from the wrath of God. Third point, past tense, were reconciled. Now, present tense and future tense. We shall be saved by his life. Here's the question behind driving this fourth point. And it's a legitimate question. And I've had people even voice it to me. And the question was this. I'm understanding, seeing what the Bible has to say, why when I sin, I'm separated from God. And why there's nothing I can do to solve that sin. Why it was necessary for Christ to die on the cross for me and pay for my sin. And why I need to respond in repentance and faith. But here's the reality of the question in the present. Why don't I then lose this salvation before God when I sin again? After receiving Christ, when I stumble, isn't that sin? Isn't that sin that can separate? If one sin was enough to separate me ultimately from God, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, why don't I lose what you're telling me I now have in terms of justified and saved by the, from the wrath, reconciled by the sin? Why don't I lose all of that when I stumble in sin? Now, it's a great question for the believer. Because there seems to be a certain logic in that question. And here's the answer to it. For those who have repented and believed in that gospel, which is, again, the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, the reason for our justification. For those who've done that, the reason we don't lose that standing, that forgiveness, that eternal life, and so forth, the reason we don't lose it, is because we now have a high priest who ever lives to save us. We shall be saved by his life. We have a high priest standing before the Heavenly Father who is constantly applying the benefits of his shed blood on the cross for those who've repented and believed in him. Listen to how it's put in the first epistle of John, in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, My little children, 
and he's talking to believers here, not unbelievers. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. In other words, God's intention for us, once redeemed, once forgiven, once justified, is that we would be growing in holiness, that we wouldn't be stumbling into sin. That's God's great intention in, in what we should be striving for. But then he goes on, he says, but if anyone does sin, good thing that's there because all of us needed that clause, didn't we? But if anyone does sin as a redeemed child of God, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. In other words, if we've been redeemed, and all of these things that we've been talking about are true for us, God's intention is that we would be growing and maturing, living holy lives pleasing to him. And yet, facing the reality of the battle we face with the flesh, with Satan, with the fallen world around us, we're going to stumble at times. And God says, in that stumbling, you do not lose your salvation because Christ is your advocate with the Father. The word advocate means defense lawyer in English. Uh, you've got someone pleading your case before the Father. Now, what's he pleading? He's not saying, oh, well, you know, Dr. Gary had a hard day, didn't sleep well last night, uh, there were reasons why he kind of lost his temper today. No, no, no. My defense lawyer, my advocate doesn't say that. What he says, yes, Dr. Gary stumbled today, sinned, lost his temper. But he placed his faith in me. He repented and believed. And therefore, my blood shed for him continues to cover him. I make the defense of my shed blood, not the defense of trying to excuse extenuating circumstances that could have caused him to stumble. I have an advocate with the Father. You have an advocate with the Father. And for that reason, that blood continues to keep me justified, continues to make sure that I'm reconciled to God, continues to make sure that I'm saved from the wrath of God. It's unbelievable almost, isn't it? And yet that's what the scripture tells us. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it says this, Consequently, he, meaning Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. How does Romans 5 put it? We shall be saved, now reconciled, by his life. He ever lives to make intercession for us. So, why don't I lose my salvation upon sinning, even after repenting and believing in the gospel? Well, it's not because I'm a nice guy, but it's because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the continual application of, of the shed blood of the cross, the propitiation for sin, the continued application of it before the very throne of the Father by my advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ. I shall be saved by his life. Present tense, future tense. I shall be saved by his blood, by his life. Isn't that a wonder? Justified by his blood, past tense. 
saved from the coming wrath of God, future tense, reconciled to God by the death of his son, past, saved and continuing to be saved by his life, present and future tense. What rejoicing there is in that. Well, fifth, in verse 10, he says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. Present tense, we rejoice in the Lord through, in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> Back in the second, in, in verses two and verse three of this fifth chapter, we encountered this same word rejoice and we looked at it more extensively there and discovered that it means to be able to hold our head up high, to, to have a lifted straight neck, to have inner confidence and certainty and boldness, a boldness that keeps us from hanging our head. J.B. Phillips, in his paraphrase of the scriptures, uh, put translated J, uh, this Romans 5.11 in this way, we may hold our heads high in light of God's love because of the reconciliation which Christ has made. <laughs> we can hold our heads up high. This is a present tense. As a believer, even knowing my frailties, I can hold my head up. Neck erect. <laughs> I can hold my head up. The wonder of God's love at the cross has been appropriated for my life. The truths that we've been looking at, to be justified, saved from wrath, reconciled to God, saved by his life, are all real in my life. They're intended by God to affect me. Are you affected by them? Can you be rejoicing in those things? And God says, that can be our contemporary no moment. We can look at what is ours and rejoice in it. Hold our head up high. No matter what our circumstances, we can rest in these truths because they're eternally true. I was thinking of King David in Psalm 40, verses 2 and 3. Listen to this description he gives. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. Boy, that's a good description, isn't it? Of you and I, sinners separated from God, enemies of God, as we put it, ungodly sinners, <laughs> enemies, weak. You drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, and you set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He has put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. And may many see and fear and put their trust in that God. Good synopsis of Romans chapter 5, isn't it? Do you have a song of praise in your heart this day? A new song? A song of praise to God for all of these amazing truths. With the goal not only of praising God, but of helping others put their trust in this gospel. Given to us from that God. Are you able to hold your head up high today? I hope that you can. If you've admitted your sin and your need and your impossible circumstance and rested in what Christ has done for you on the cross, receive him as Savior. Trust his work and not your own. All of these things are yours. 
Don't let another day go by if you have not made that decision. Make it today. In the quiet of your heart before God, settle the issue. Well, join me next time. Lord willing, we'll move further and continue to look at some of the issues related to the outcomes of justification, the reality of our sin, and the wonder of God's grace. Join me then, won't you? God bless.